We're in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me open us up in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here ministering to us and speaking to us as we open up this scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was reading this chapter, I couldn't help but wonder how some couples get together. And if you, you have no idea what I'm talking about unless you read this, but Nabal and Abigail, how did they get together? Because, you know, in this chapter, we're going to see how, how Abigail, she seems so sensible. She seems so gracious and generous. And, and Nabal, he's a punk. He's just flat out punk. He's, he's, he's thick-headed. He's stubborn. He's arrogant. And so, like some of my relatives, which I won't mention because some of them are still alive, I just wonder, how in the world did they get to... How did my... I can't do this. I can't label them, otherwise they might hear. I'm going to do it anyway. How did my aunt end up with you? Um, so, how did you guys get together? I mean, you're, you're a jerk. And, and my aunt's so nice. And she cooks well. And, you know, all this. And then there's relatives on my in-law side, which I won't go there. But... Um, <laughs> So, like, one relative is just so delightful to be around, right? It's just like, oh, they're so gentle and kind. And then, and then there's the other one, nasty, obnoxious, just mean-spirited, just, just a punk. And, and it makes you wonder, how did they get together? And it's just like Nabal and Abigail, you know, how did they get together? But that's not the point of the message this morning. It's just something I was wondering about as I was reading this. But let's start by um, looking at the structure of this chapter because that's really important when you're doing a study, when you're doing an exegesis of a chapter, that you outline it structurally so that you kind of know what the author was trying to get at. Because there's a, a way that these authors are writing. So there are three movements within this chapter. Now the first one is in verses 4 through 7. And this is where we're going to find this tension between Nabal and David. And the second section is verses 18 through 35, where we're going to see this intervention from Abigail, and we're going to see the wisdom of Abigail. And then the last section is this, uh, verses 36 through 39, where it's the, the work of God, how, how God uh, provides this resolution to all this stuff. Now keep in mind we're in the southern part of Judah, and let's just start by reading verses 1 through 17, and then we'll talk about Nabal being a punk. So 1 through 17. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, 
Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. It's interesting that we don't even get Nabal's name until verse 3, after we're given some significant information about him like he had a business in Carmel. And it's in the southern part of Judah. We have a a map of that just so that you guys can kind of get a reference of where that is. So we're we're told he's very rich. He has 3,000 sheep. He has 1,000 goats. So a a lot of livestock for this one guy. Then Then we're given his name Nabal, which means fool. And so as we read on, we will just really see how foolish this guy is. Now in the Bible, the, the, the word fool, it has more substance than in our vernacular, right? In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, it's written, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Totally descriptive of Nabal. And so Nabal was this spiritually, morally, socially depleted man. Just, just a disaster of a man. But he ended up with this wife named Abigail who was sensible and generous. And so I, I can't help it. I kind of wonder how these people get together. Anyway, Nabal's just this nasty grouch. And Abigail's this discerning, beautiful woman. And so, so that's the introduction we get into these two characters until we get to this first section we're going to talk about in verses 4 through 17. Now in verses 4 through 17, we have the stupidity of Nabal. And because of this stupidity, we have this tension between David and Nabal. And so you see, while David was running from Saul in the southern part of Judah, he was protecting Nabal's shepherds and, and his livestock from wild animals and, and raiders. And during this sheep shearing, right, in verse 7... Which was, which was this really celebratory, which was this really festive time. David sent some of his guys to Nabal to just ask for, for some party goods, some party favors, right? And so he goes there, and, and, and so he, he's like, hey, can you, can you just provide us some stuff for, for us, you know, some, some necessities, just whatever you guys are feasting on here, some food, some drink, you know, stuff like that. And he, he thought it was a fair thing to do. You know, my, my guys provided protection for, for your, your guys and, and defense for your guys. And you, you didn't suffer any losses because we were a wall between the outside and, and you guys. So can you, can you just give us something? And so, you know, not asking for too much. And it would have been a courteous thing, a grateful thing, a thoughtful thing for Nabal to do, right? For protecting your livelihood. I mean, his wealth was kind of tied into to them protecting their, his livestock. And, and they weren't asking for much. And this isn't some guy that's just barely making it. I mean, this guy's rich. 
really rich. And, and David and his men had this role in making this guy as rich as he was. So the guys head over to Nabal and, and he responds, no. But it's not like this courteous no or, or just like a simple no. right? It, it's, it's rather a, a rude response. And you see this in verse 10 when he says, uh, who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? Right? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Nabal is, is labeling David as, as just another renegade, as just an, a, another runaway slave that, that's no different than any other runaway slave, and that he's not going to waste his time giving him anything. You know, giving it to a bunch of nobodies. Like, who's David? Totally disrespecting him, totally dishonoring him before his men. And so he doesn't show any type of gratitude that, that some of his wealth was tied to David's protection of his flock. And, and then he rubs it in a little bit more in verse 11. In verse 11 he says, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Because what I think matters. So we see how self-centered Nabal was here. You know, my bread, my water, my meat, I have killed my shears. I do not know. It's all about me. It's all about my stuff. And essentially, you know, all mine, I don't have to share any of it. Take a hike. Right? And so interesting that Nabal's response here is similar to Pharaoh's response in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So like Nabal, you know, who's David? He's a nobody, just like any other loser out there. You know, I, I'm big money Nabal. Right? It's all, it's all about me. The people are mine. The stuff is mine. I decide, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm king. And so, so David responds to this disrespect and this dishonor in verse 13. And he says, Every man strap on his sword. And you notice that the action of strapping the sword, it's mentioned three times in that verse, which means he meant business. Right? He's like, get my gat. Right? He's like, he wasn't going to go there simply to rough him up. He, he was going there to kill him. Strap on the sword. Three times in one verse. And for us to see, what David had in mind for Nabal and, and his crew, you, you look at verse 22. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David was going to completely wipe this guy out. And so he took 400 men with him with, with swords strapped to them to fight against this sheep and goat farmer and his workers. And so you can see how ticked off he was at this guy, right? He, he's mad. He's going to take vengeance against someone who disrespected him, who dishonored him. And you look at verse 21 at, at how uh, Nabal punked David here. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. Nabal is not going to play me. Right, he he had, he and every man with him, they are not going to see mourning. They're dead, and so Nabal has this major problem. Or does he? Does Nabal have the problem, or does David really have the problem? See, David had created for himself a problem. 
Right? And another problem David has is that he doesn't even know that he has a problem. So verses 14 through 17 are really interesting here. Because I, I think a lot of times people kind of like look past it. It's where this anonymous yet this really perceptive servant comes into play. Let's read that. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This anonymous, nameless servant is telling Abigail, do something, your husband's a loser. And, and he, knows, he knows Nabal's a punk, and he won't do anything about it. And In fact, he's the one that made this mess, and now we're dead. Can you do something? And so when people read this chapter, most people put all the attention on Abigail. And rightly so. It's, it's, she's a main character here. But if we look at this story in its entirety, it's this servant, whom we don't even know his name, who is responsible for the turning point of this whole story. Right? Because in these four verses, this changes things. Because if he didn't say anything, they are dead. Right? Nabal, everyone, dead. And so this unnamed servant and what he told Abigail, what he did, is responsible for this pivotal point of this story. And it's like that in other places in, in scriptures as well. And sometimes we just kind of overlook them real quick. Like Second Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, where, where Naaman, right, the, the, the leper, he's the commander of the Syrian army, a really powerful army at the time. He goes to Israel. Now, why did he go to Israel? Do you ever pick this up? Because the Syrians, they were kind of raiding all over the land of Israel, and they captured this little Israelite girl on one of the raids, and then she ended up being this maidservant to Naaman's wife. And so she said in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 3, to Naaman's wife, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That one sentence determines everything in Second Kings chapter 5 because it hinged on what that little girl said to Naaman because he had this leprosy and he wanted to go see Elisha to get healed. Everything pending on that verse. Or you look at Second Kings chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Right, this is the story about Elisha and that axe head. And, and so Elisha goes with the sons uh, of the prophets to cut down some trees to make some space for some more living quarters because the interns don't have enough living space like here, so we need to build out. So as one of the guys is chopping away, the axe head fell off. And it's, it's made out of iron. And he panicked because he borrowed this axe head. And back then, axe heads were really expensive. It's like dropping a Rolex down into the river, right? And so Elisha made the iron float up and recovered the axe head. But have you ever noticed in that story what the turning point was? It's in verse 3, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 3. And it's, it's when one of them, one of the sons of the prophets says, Be pleased to go with your servants. And then Elisha answered, I will go. Just that simple line there changed everything, right? Because just as the sons of the prophets were ready to go, one of them asked Elisha to go with them, and everything hinged on that verse, and on that invitation, and we don't even get that guy's name who invited Elisha. But if Elisha wasn't there, that guy who lost that axe head would, would have to work 
a really long time for the guy he borrowed that axe head from to pay that back. A long time. Because he was a son of a minister. So there's no money there. And so a, a lot of things depend on, on, on something we don't even give much thought to. On someone we don't even know. And we don't even know their names, even though their actions or, or what they did were so pivotal in history. And so what about Acts chapter 23, verses 16 through 22? Where Paul, you know, he's detained in Jerusalem and the Jews were, were planning to use the Roman tribunal uh, to, to bring him out for another inquiry. So that when, when he would come out, that the plan was to assassinate Paul when he came out. So a bunch of these guys are saying, we're not going to eat until that guy is dead. And so they're, they're plotting there. And so Paul's nephew happens to overhear this. Right? He's just snooping around, just a little kid. And you're like, how do you know he was a little kid? Well, if you read that chapter, it talks about how he was led by the hand. I don't think you kind of grab an old, old guy by the hand. Hey, come here. Right? It's probably a little kid. Grab him by the hand. And so, so they're, they're planning to assassinate Paul. His nephew finds out. And what's his name? We're not given his name. Right? We, we are not told his name. We don't even know who, which nephew it is. But he told Paul, and Paul told him to tell the centurion, and so this assassination attempt, it's foiled, thwarted. And so we don't know the name of little maids. We don't know the names of sons of prophets or of nephews. We don't know those things, but we do need to know God, who in His kindness and in His, wisdoms, in his wisdom knows all that we need and provides these kind of helpers here. And he has a lot of unknown people in our life, random servants and little maids and students and, and who don't know how to swing an axe and snooping nephews at the right place, at the right time. And so you see that we don't have to be something special for God to use us. He just does. And, and, and he uses us so-called nobodies and, and what we say and what we do can actually swing history or have history hinge on, on the things that we do. Or do you see how we ought to respond to God's servants when they come into our life, when we consider somebody a nobody or whatever, how maybe that person is being used by God to speak something to me. And so you got to be careful of those so-called nobodies out there that you write off because they just might be part of God's plan in your life. God is even in the small details of our life. And he has these people where we need them to be just at the right place at the right time. Let's go on with our text, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, 
and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord of, of your God. And the lives of your enemies be he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you have hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Here we see Abigail's intervention. She saved her husband's behind. And through her resourcefulness, through her quick thinking, she, she, she just loads a bunch of stuff on some donkeys, she books it to David before he can get to, to them. And you notice in verses 24 through 31, where we have Abigail's speech, which is actually the longest speech given by a woman in the Old Testament. And her speech here is the center of this section of Scripture. It's, it's the main thing of this scripture. And you, and you notice how respectful, how honoring and submissive she is to David as she called him Lord 14 times in that section. Something that her husband Nabal was unwilling to do, but it's, it's what helped to effectively intervene on behalf of her family and her workers, and it worked. And the keynote to this speech is found in verse 26. Now then, my Lord... As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, and this is language of of taking an oath here, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. Now how did he do that? Through Abigail. Abigail intercepted him before reaching Nabal and, and David accepts her gifts of peace. And so she changed David's mind, and and so he changed his mind. He's not going to attack anymore. And then there's the same emphasis in verse 31. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. That because Abigail's intervention, because of that, that's what saved David's reputation because what would have been thought of David for wiping out Nabal's household, this farmer, this rancher's household, while sitting on the throne as king. What would people think of him? What type of guilt would have been stained on his reign as king for wiping out Nabal's household? And it would have made him like Saul, right? Saul who who reacted towards his opposition with murder. 
And it would, it would haunt David's conscience. It would, it would grieve his heart. It would fill his mind with guilt. It, it would just ruin David's reputation. So how God restrained David. And David recognized what Abigail did for him. You look at verse 33. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be to you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. See, Abigail kept him back from ruining himself. God used Abigail to hold David back. And you see that that's how God works sometimes. Right? He, he puts something in front of us that blocks us, that frustrates us, that, that hinders us. And it, it may be those very things that are actually the evidences of God's grace and mercy towards us. And God oftentimes, he, he intervenes by restraint. By restraining His children from evil and, and rescuing them from themselves, from their own stupidity. Now, has God ever done that for you? Right? Where He put some type of roadblock in your path where you were, you were just determined to go. You wanted to do that thing. Where, where the obstacles in front of you, they were just frustrating you. Like, man, why is that there? If that wasn't there, I could do this thing more quickly. right? But, but, but when you look back, you, you're, you're glad that those things hindered your progress in doing what you wanted to do. And that's what he did for David here. He sent this Savior in Abigail who, who kept him from trouble. And so frustration isn't always bad. Sometimes frustration is mercy. Frustration is grace. And not all hindrances are bad. Sometimes the hindrances are, are forms of kindness. Sometimes we, we just don't have the whole picture as to what's going on and, and we don't get the bigger picture until way down the line to, to look back and see that, oh, thank God. And, and there are some things in our lives that we just won't get until the Lord gives us a perspective on those things. And we're not as wise as we think we are and we're not as consistent with our wisdom as we think we are, are we? Because if you look back one chapter in chapter 24, verses 4-7, through seven, we saw how David showed great restraint, right? How he controlled himself, how he got on his men. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. Talking about Saul, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. How David showed just great restraint not to take vengeance on Saul. But here, we find that David doesn't practice restraint and he's actually needing to be restrained and that's the point of this chapter. That God often intervenes to restrain His servants from evil. To rescue us from ourselves. And David's inconsistency from once being able to restrain himself to now not being able to, it almost ruined him. And when it was an anointed king, when it was Saul, David saw that he couldn't seize that moment and kill Saul, so he practiced restraint. But when it was this private Israelite sheep and goat rancher who insulted him, not even someone who threw a spear at him or tried to kill him or anything like that, who insulted him, he didn't apply the same principles to Nabal, and it was God who had to intervene by sending Abigail. See, it's God's preventive providence. That's the theme of this chapter. And what is providence? We gave a definition of it before, but let me try to redefine it again here because there's a lot of ways to define this. But let's just define it like this. Providence is God's often mysterious, 
yet always interesting ways to provide for our known and unknown needs. Right? God's often mysterious, yet always interesting ways to provide for our known and unknown needs. And this theme comes up four different times as there are these verbs indicating restraint. And so back to that structural outlining and stuff, when you when you, you gotta you gotta pull the verbs out of the Bible to let you know what's going on here, because right here it's it's talking about restraint or keeping back or holding back, and it's really important to pick up these things when you're when you're studying a Bible passage, and it's really important to keep track of these these actions of what's happening in the passage. That's, otherwise you're gonna miss what the Bible is telling you, and you're just gonna interpret it how you feel. Who cares how you feel? What is the text saying? Like what what is the Bible telling us? So you, you take a look at this theme by looking at these verses that point to this. And so we start by looking at verse 26. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. In verse 33, Blessed be your discretion and blessed be to you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. Verse 34, For as surely as the Lord the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Verse 39, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. So four times you you get this restraint, this holding back, this keeping back. And so David acknowledged that Abigail was the instrument God used to hold him back. And you look back at verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And so we see the restraint of God's providence. And we see how David didn't practice the same wisdom from one moment, chapter 24, to the next, chapter 25. And it doesn't seem like this wisdom he exercised with Saul transferred to his dealings with Nabal. Now have any of you found yourself in situations like that? In situations like this? Because it's not something that was reserved only for those who lived back in 1020 B.C. Right? It wasn't for reserved for special people like David. I mean, haven't we all experienced a time when you know, we, we dealt quite well with a really difficult circumstance? And you're like, good job. That was great. But then like the next chapter in your life, you fail to exercise that same wisdom to a similar circumstance, but you failed. And it was actually something smaller. Where we've exercised these good principles, we've, we've experienced what was good and, and did good things, but then when something similar happens in the near future, we, we, we actually act differently without that same wisdom that we had. So I don't know why that is, whether it's just a change in setting or scenery or what, what circumstances are different, whatever. But the same principles apply, don't they? The same principles apply. Like David here in chapter 25. We saw that David refused his vengeance in in chapter 24, right? It's not right. But here in chapter 25, he seems pretty eager to take vengeance on himself. Strap your swords, strap your swords, strap your swords, right? Let's get ready to rumble. And so what's the difference in principle between Saul the murderer and Nabal the punk? In principle, nothing, right? In principle, nothing's different. It's just that sometimes we, we see things really clearly like David did in chapter 24, and so we respond properly. 
And in other times, we're blind like David is in chapter 25. And sometimes we just don't learn. Sometimes our pride gets in the way because we think that we're smarter than we are and we're more experienced than we think we are. But we just don't because the wisdom doesn't always transfer from one experience to the next experience. And sometimes this happens in our Christian life where we fail, where we once succeeded. Aren't you tired of that? Doesn't that bite? Where, where we fail to transfer what we once learned from the Lord, and we're like, oh, yes, yes, and you, next, you failed. But, but you know, thank God for those roadblocks. Praise God for frustrations that, that thwart our self-destructive plans, for us being so prideful in ourselves, for us thinking that we're more than we are, that we're smarter than we are. How merciful God is in, in hindering us and reminding us, I'm actually God, Right? And, and so I know there are some of us who, who can look back in our lives and, and we can thank Him for those preventive providence moments. And thank God for His patience with us to, to continue to learn wisdom even though we learned it and then we failed and we learned it and we failed. But, you know, praise God for those past experiences that, that He's given us so that we can continue to learn and continue to grow and mature and develop. Let's move on. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as stone. And about ten days later the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. So you read here that Nabal's just too drunk to even hear what Abigail did. So she waited till the next day. And, and on that day, Nabal appeared to have a stroke or some type of medical condition that 10 days later, he died. Right? The Lord struck Nabal dead and, and the Lord struck him, not David. The Lord took care of that vengeance. Verse 40, When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. The teaching of this chapter is that God intervenes to keep back his servants from evil. That God often intercepts his people when we go in in these blind paths that would be really tragic to us. And God has restraint in his providence. And, and you know, we, we just really won't find out how much God has protected us and restrained us until we can look back to our lives in kind of like this full view. And, and what can we take away from this teaching? How can we apply this teaching this morning? Well, I think this is really helpful in how we look at our circumstances, isn't it? That this kind of influences our attitude and our perspective towards our circumstances. Because if this is how God often works then perhaps we should exercise more patience when, when we're in the thick of our mess, knowing that He uses hindrances, frustrations, and roadblocks in our lives to restrain us from something. So is it possible that 
when we don't get what we want. That it just might be God's mercy protecting us from a disaster that we can't even see, that we don't even know about. And it's often the case that that we can't see enough, that we don't know enough to make any types of conclusions that what is prevented from God is unkind, that it isn't merciful, that it isn't gracious, that it can actually be kind, that it can actually be gracious, that it can actually be merciful. And maybe just because we don't see something or understand something that, that we shouldn't discard that stuff as nonsense. Because God's understanding is unsearchable, as it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. So let's close with a word from Paul coming from his letter to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for not only the things that you give us, but the things that you don't give us. And pray, Lord, for anyone here that is needing you in their life to give them discernment, to to know more clearly and to lay things at your feet more easily and to have patience in their life to live because they know that you're in control. But without you, they don't know that. And I ask God that you would soften their minds and their hearts to accept you. And for those who are backslidden and not walking with you, but who know you, I pray, Lord, that um, you would encourage them, that you would bring them back in your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.